Chapter thirty five, part one of Tristram Shandy, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, Volume Two, by Lawrence Stern. Chapter thirty five, part one. No matter. As an appendage to seamstressy, the thread paper might be of some consequence to my mother, of none to my father as a mark in Slorkenbergius. Slorkenbergius, in every page of him, was a rich treasure of inexhaustible knowledge to my father. He could not open him amiss, and he would often say, in closing the book, that if all the arts and sciences in the world, with the books which treated of them, were lost, should the wisdom and policies of governments, he would say, through disuse, ever happen to be forgot, and all that statesmen had wrote, or caused to be written, upon the strong or the weak sides of courts and kingdoms, should they be forgot also, and Slockenbergius only left, there would be enough in him in all conscience, he would say, to set the world a-going again. A treasure, therefore, was he indeed, an institute of all that was necessary to be known of noses, and everything else. At matin, noon, and vespers was Harfen Slorkenbergius his recreation and delight. T'was for ever in his hands. You would have sworn, sir, it had been a canon's prayer-book, so worn, so glazed, so contrited and attrited was it with fingers and with thumbs in all its parts, from one end even unto the other. I am not such a bigot to Slorkenbergius as my father. There is a fund in him, no doubt, but in my opinion the best, I don't say the most profitable, but the most amusing part of Harfen Slorkenbergius is his tales, and, considering he was a German, many of them are told not without fancy. These take up his second book, containing nearly one half of his folio, and are comprehended in ten decads each decad containing ten tales. Philosophy is not built upon tales, and therefore t'was certainly wrong in Slorkenbergius to send them into the world by that name. There are a few of them in his eighth, ninth, and ten decads, which I own seem rather playful and sportive than speculative, but in general they are to be looked upon by the learned as a detail of so many independent facts all of them turning round somehow or other upon the main hinges of his subject, and added to his work as so many illustrations upon the doctrines of noses. As we have leisure enough upon our hands, if you give me leave, madam, I'll tell you the ninth tale of his tenth decad. Slorkenbergi Fabella Slorkenbergius's Tale As Harfen Slorkenbergius de Nazis is extremely scarce, it may not be unacceptable to the learned reader to see the specimen of a few pages of his original. I will make no reflection upon it, but that his story-telling Latin is much more concise than his philosophic, and, I think, has more of Latinity in it. Vespera quadam frigidum. It was one cool refreshing evening, at the close of a very sultry day, in the latter end of the month of August, when a stranger, mounted upon a dark mule, with a small cloak-bag behind him, containing a few shirts, 
a pair of shoes and a crimson satin pair of breeches entered the town of Strasbourg. He told the sentinel, who questioned him as he entered the gates, that he had been at the Promontory of Noses, was going on to Frankfurt, and should be back again at Strasbourg that day month, in his way to the borders of Crim Tartary. The sentinel looked up into the stranger's face. He never saw such a nose in his life. I have made a very good venture of it, quoth the stranger, so slipping his wrist out of the loop of a black ribbon, to which a short scimitar was hung, he put his hand into his pocket, and with great courtesy, touching the forepart of his cap with his left hand, as he extended his right, he put a florin into the sentinel's hand, and passed on. It grieves me, said the sentinel, speaking to a little dwarfish, bandy-legged drummer, that so courteous a soul should have lost his scabbard. He cannot travel without one to his scimitar, and will not be able to get a scabbard to fit in all Strasbourg. I never had one, replied the stranger, looking back to the sentinel, and putting his hand up to his cap as he spoke. I carry it, continued he, thus, holding up his naked scimitar, his mule moving on slowly all the time, on purpose to defend my nose. It is well worth it, gentle stranger, replied the sentinel. "'Tis not worth a single stiver,' said the bandy-legged drummer. "'Tis a nose of parchment. "'As I am a true Catholic, except that it is six times as big, "'tis a nose,' said the sentinel, like my own. "'I heard it crackle,' said the drummer. "'By dunder,' said the sentinel, "'I saw it bleed.' "'What a pity!' cried the bandy-legged drummer. "'We did not both touch it.' At the very time that this dispute was maintaining by the sentinel and the drummer, was the same point debating betwixt a trumpeter and a trumpeter's wife, who were just then coming up, and had stopped to see the stranger pass by. Benedicity! What a nose! Tis as long, said the trumpeter's wife, as a trumpet. And of the same metal, said the trumpeter, as you hear by its sneezing. Tis as soft as a flute, said she. "'Tis brass,' said the trumpeter. "'Tis a pudding's end,' said his wife. "'I tell thee again,' said the trumpeter, "'tis a brazen nose.' "'I'll know the bottom of it,' said the trumpeter's wife, "'for I will touch it with my finger before I sleep.' The stranger's mule moved on at so slow a rate that he heard every word of the dispute, not only betwixt the sentinel and the drummer, but betwixt the trumpeter and trumpeter's wife. No said he, dropping his reins upon the mule's neck, and laying both his hands upon his breast, the one over the other in a saint-like position, his mule going on easily all the time. No, said he, looking up, I am not such a debtor to the world, slandered and disappointed as I have been, as to give it that conviction. No, said he, my nose shall never be touched while heaven gives me strength. To do what? said a burgomaster's wife. The stranger took no notice of the burgomaster's wife. He was making a vow to St. Nicholas, which done, having uncrossed his arms with the same solemnity with which he had crossed them, he took up the reins of his bridle with his left hand, and putting his right hand into his bosom, with the scimitar hanging loosely to the wrist of it, he rode on, as slowly as one foot of the mule could follow another, through the principal streets of Strasbourg, till chance brought him to the great inn in the market-place over against the church.
The moment the stranger alighted, he ordered his mule to be led into the stable, and his cloak-bag to be brought in, then opening, and taking out of it his crimson satin breeches, with a silver-fringed appendage to them which I dare not translate, he put his breeches with his fringed codpiece on, and forthwith, with his short scimitar in his hand, walked out to the grand parade. The stranger had just taken three turns upon the parade, when he perceived the trumpeter's wife at the opposite side of it, so turning short, in pain lest his nose should be attempted, he instantly went back to his inn, undressed himself, packed up his crimson satin breeches, etc., in his cloak-bag, and called for his mule. "'I am going forwards,' said the stranger, "'for Frankfurt, and shall be back at Strasbourg this day month.' "'I hope,' continued the stranger, stroking down the face of his mule with his left hand as he was going to mount it, "'that you have been kind to this faithful slave of mine. "'It has carried me and my cloak-bag,' continued he, tapping the mule's back, "'above six hundred leagues.' "'Tis a long journey, sir,' replied the master of the inn, "'unless a man has a great business.' "'Tut, tut,' said the stranger, "'I have been at the promontory of noses, "'and have got me one of the goodliest, thank heaven, "'that ever fell to a single man's lot.' Whilst the stranger was giving this odd account of himself, the master of the inn and his wife kept both their eyes fixed full upon the stranger's nose. "'By St. Radagunda,' said the innkeeper's wife to herself, "'there is more of it than in any dozen of the largest noses put together in all Strasbourg. "'Is it not?' said she, whispering her husband in his ear. "'Is it not a noble nose?' "'Tis an imposture, my dear,' said the master of an inn. "'Tis a false nose.' "'Tis a true nose,' said his wife. "'Tis made of fir-tree,' said he. "'I smell the turpentine.' "'There's a pimple on it,' said she. "'Tis a dead nose,' replied the innkeeper. "'Tis a live nose, and if I am alive myself,' said the innkeeper's wife, "'I will touch it.' "'I have made a vow to St. Nicholas this day,' said the stranger, "'that my nose shall not be touched till—' "'Here the stranger, suspending his voice, looked up. "'Till when?' said she hastily. It shall never be touched, said he, clasping his hands and bringing them close to his breast, till that hour. What hour? cried the innkeeper's wife. Never, never, said the stranger, never till I am got. For heaven's sake, into what place? said she. The stranger rode away without saying a word. The stranger had not got half a league on his way towards Frankfurt, before all the city of Strasbourg was in an uproar about his nose. The Compline bells were just ringing to call the Strasburgers to their devotions, and shut up the duties of the day in prayer. No soul in all Strasbourg heard him. The city was like a swarm of bees, men, women, and children, the Compline bells tinkling all the time, flying here and there, in at one door, out at another, this way and that way, long ways and cross ways, up one street, down another, in at this alley, out of that. Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? Oh, did you see it? Who saw it? Who did see it? For mercy's sake, who saw it? Alack a day, I was at vespers, I was washing, I was starching, I was scouring, I was quilting. God help me, I never saw it, I never touched it. Would I had been a sentinel, a bandy-legged drummer, 
A trumpeter, a trumpeter's wife, was the general cry and lamentation in every street and corner of Strasbourg. Whilst all this confusion and disorder triumphed throughout the great city of Strasbourg, was the courteous stranger going on as gently upon his mule in his way to Frankfurt, as if he had no concern at all in the affair, talking all the way he rode in broken sentences, sometimes to his mule, sometimes to himself, sometimes to his Julia. Oh, Julia, my lovely Julia! Nay, I cannot stop to let thee bite that thistle. That ever the suspected tongue of a rival should have robbed me of enjoyment when I was upon the point of tasting it. Pah! Tis nothing but a thistle, never mind it. Thou shalt have a better supper at night. Banished from my country, my friends, from thee. Poor devil, thou art sadly tired with thy journey. Come, get on a little faster. There's nothing in my cloak-bag but two shirts, a crimson satin pair of breeches, and a fringed... Dear Julia, but why to Frankfurt? Is it that there is a hand unfelt, which secretly is conducting me through these meanders and unsuspected tracts? Stumbling, by St. Nicholas, every step! Why, at this rate we shall be all night in getting in! To happiness! Or am I to be the sport of fortune and slander, destined to be driven forth unconvicted, unheard, untouched? If so, why did I not stay at Strasbourg? where justice, but I had sworn. Come, thou shalt drink, to St. Nicholas. O oh, Julia, what dost thou prick up thy ears at? Tis nothing but a man, etc. The stranger rode on, communing in this manner with his mule and Julia, till he arrived at his inn, where, as soon as he arrived, he alighted, saw his mule, as he had promised it, taken good care of, took off his cloak-bag, with his crimson satin breeches, etc., in it, called for an omelette to his supper, went to bed about twelve o'clock, and in five minutes fell fast asleep. It was about the same hour when the tumult in Strasbourg being abated for that night, the Strasburgers had all got quietly into their beds, but not like the stranger for the rest either of their minds or bodies. Queen Mab, like an elf as she was, had taken the stranger's nose, and without reduction of its bulk, had that night been at the pains of slitting and dividing it into as many noses of different cuts and fashions, as there were heads in Strasbourg to hold them. The abbess of Quedlingburg, who, with the four great dignitaries of her chapter, the prioress, the deaness, the sub-chantress, and senior canoness, had that week come to Strasbourg to consult the university upon a case of conscience relating to their placket-holes, was ill all the night. The courteous stranger's nose had got perched upon the top of the pineal gland of her brain, and made such rousing work in the fancies of the four great dignitaries of her chapter, they could not get a wink of sleep the whole night through for it. There was no keeping a limb still amongst them. In short, they got up like so many ghosts. The penitentiaries of the Third Order of St. Francis, the nuns of Mount Calvary, the Primonstratenses, the Clunienses. Hafenslogenbergius means the Benedictine nuns of Cluny, founded in the year 940 by Oddo, Abbe de Cluny. The Carthusians, and all the severer orders of nuns, who lay that night in blankets of hair-cloth, 
were still in a worse condition than the abbess of Quedlingburg, by tumbling and tossing, and tossing and tumbling from one side of their beds to the other the whole night long. The several sisterhoods had scratched and mauled themselves all to death. They got out of their beds almost flayed alive. Everybody thought St. Anthony had visited them for probation with his fire. They never had once, in short, shut their eyes the whole night long from vespers to matins. The nuns of St. Ursula acted the wisest. They never attempted to go to bed at all. The dean of Strasbourg, the prebendaries, the capitulars and domiciliars, capitularly assembled in the morning to consider the case of buttered buns, all wished they had followed the nuns of St. Ursula's example. In the hurry and confusion everything had been in the night before, the bakers had all forgot to lay their leaven. There were no buttered buns to be had for breakfast in all Strasbourg. The whole close of the cathedral was in one eternal commotion, such a cause of restlessness and disquietude, and such a zealous inquiry into that cause of restlessness, had never happened in Strasbourg, since Martin Luther, with his doctrines, had turned the city upside down. If the stranger's nose took this liberty of thrusting himself thus into the dishes of religious orders, etc., what a carnival did his nose make of it in those of the laity? Footnote. Mr. Shandy's compliments to orators is very sensible that Slockenbergius has here changed his metaphor, which he is very guilty of, that as a translator Mr. Shandy has all along done what he could to make him stick to it, but that here t'was impossible. End of footnote. Tis more than my pen, worn to the stump as it is, has power to describe, though, I acknowledge, cries Slorkenbergius with more gaiety of thought than I could have expected from him, that there is many a good simile now subsisting in the world which might give my countrymen some idea of it, but at the close of such a folio as this, wrote for their sakes, and in which I have spent the greatest part of my life, though I own to them the simile is in being, yet would it not be unreasonable in them to expect that I should have either time or inclination to search for it? Let it suffice to say that the riot and disorder it occasioned in the Strasburgers' fantasies was so general, such an overpowering mastership had it got of all the faculties of the Strasburgers' minds, so many strange things, with equal confidence on all sides, and with equal eloquence in all places, were spoken and sworn to concerning it, that turned the whole stream of all discourse and wonder towards it. Every soul, good and bad, rich and poor, learned and unlearned, doctor and student, mistress and maid, gentle and simple, nun's flesh and woman's flesh, in Strasbourg spent their time in hearing tidings about it. Every eye in Strasbourg languished to see it, every finger, every thumb in Strasbourg burned to touch it. Now what might add, if anything may be thought necessary to add, to so vehement a desire, was this, that the sentinel, the bandy-legged drummer, the trumpeter, the trumpeter's wife, the burgomaster's widow, the master of the inn, and the master of the inn's wife, how widely soever they all differed, every one from another in their testimonies and description of the stranger's nose, they all agreed together in two points, namely, that he was gone to Frankfurt, and would not return to Strasbourg till that day month, 
and secondly, whether his nose was true or false, that the stranger himself was one of the most perfect paragons of beauty, the finest made man, the most genteel, the most generous of his purse, the most courteous in his carriage that had ever entered the gates of Strasbourg, that as he rode, with scimitar slung loosely to his wrist through the streets, and walked with his crimson satin breeches across the parade, twas with so sweet an air of careless modesty, and so manly withal, as would have put the heart in jeopardy, had his nose not stood in the way, of every virgin who had cast her eyes upon him. I call not upon that heart which is a stranger to the throbs and yearnings of curiosity, so excited, to justify the abbess of Quedlingburg, the prioress, the deaness, and the sub-chantress, for sending at noonday for the trumpeter's wife. She went through the streets of Strasbourg with her husband's trumpet in her hand, the best apparatus the straightness of the time would allow her for the illustration of her theory. She stayed no longer than three days. The sentinel and bandy-legged drummer, nothing on this side of old Athens could equal them, they read their lectures under the city gates to comers and goers, with all the pomp of a Chrysippus and a Crantor in their porticoes. The master of the inn, with his ostler on his left hand, read his also in the same style, under the portico or gateway of his stable-yard, his wife, hers more privately in a back-room, all flocked to their lectures, not promiscuously, but to this or that, as is ever the way, as faith and credulity marshalled them. In a word, each Strasburger came crowding for intelligence, and every Strasburger had the intelligence he wanted. "'Tis worth remarking, for the benefit of all demonstrators in natural philosophy, etc., that as soon as the trumpeter's wife had finished the abbess of Quedlingburg's private lecture, and had begun to read in public, which she did upon a stool in the middle of the great parade, she incommoded the other demonstrators mainly by gaining incontinently the most fashionable part of the city of Strasbourg for her auditory. But when a demonstrator in philosophy, cries Slockenbergius, has a trumpet for an apparatus, pray what rival in science can pretend to be heard besides him? Whilst the unlearned, through these conduits of intelligence, were all busied in getting down to the bottom of the well, where truth keeps her little court, were the learned in their way as busy as pumping her up through the conduits of dialect induction. They concerned themselves not with facts, they reasoned. Not one profession had thrown more light upon this subject than the faculty. Had not all their disputes about it run into the affair of wens and edometous swellings, they could not keep clear of them for their bloods and souls. The stranger's nose had nothing to do either with wens or edometous swellings. It was demonstrated, however, very satisfactorily, that such a preponderous mass of heterogeneous matter could not be congested and conglomerated to the nose, whilst the inferent was in utera, without destroying the statical balance of the fetus, and throwing it plump upon its head nine months before the time. The opponents granted the theory, they denied the consequences. And if a suitable provision of veins, arteries, etc., said they, was not laid in for the due nourishment of such a nose, in the very first stamina and rudiments of its formation, before it came into the world, bating the case of Wens, it could not regularly grow and be sustained afterwards. 
This was all answered by a dissertation upon nutriment, and the effect which nutriment had in extending the vessels, and in the increase and prolongation of the muscular parts to the greatest growth and expansion imaginable. In the triumph of which theory they went so far as to affirm that there was no cause in nature why a nose might not grow to the size of the man himself. The respondents satisfied the world this event could never happen to them so long as a man had but one stomach and one pair of lungs. For the stomach, said they, being the only organ destined for the reception of food and turning it into chyle, and the lungs the only engine of sanguification, it could possibly work off no more than what the appetite brought it, or admitting the possibility of a man's overloading his stomach, nature had set bounds, however, to his lungs. The engine was of a determined size and strength, and could elaborate but a certain quantity in a given time. That is, it could produce just as much blood as was sufficient for one single man, and no more. So that, if there was as much nose as man, they proved a mortification must necessarily ensue, and forasmuch as there could not be a support for both, that the nose must either fall off from the man, or the man inevitably fall off from his nose. Nature accommodates herself to these emergencies, cried the opponents. What else do you say to the case of a whole stomach, a whole pair of lungs, and but half a man, when both his legs have been unfortunately shot off? He dies of a plethora, said they, or must spit blood, and in a fortnight or three weeks go off in a consumption. It happens otherwise, replied the opponents. It ought not, said they. The more curious and intimate inquirers after nature and her doings, though they went hand in hand a good way together, yet they all divided about the nose at last, almost as much as the faculty itself. They amicably laid it down that there was a just and geometrical arrangement and proportion of the several parts of the human frame to its several destinations, offices, and functions, which could not be transgressed but within certain limits, that nature, though she sported, she sported within a certain circle, and they could not agree about the diameter of it. The logician stuck much closer to the point before them than any of the classes of the literati. They began and ended with the word nose, and had it not been for a petitio principii, which one of the ablest of them ran his head against in the beginning of the combat, the whole controversy had been settled at once. A nose, argued the logician, cannot bleed without blood, and not only blood, but blood circulating in it to supply the phenomenon with a succession of drops, a stream being but a quicker succession of drops that is included, said he. Now death, continued the logician, being nothing but a stagnation of the blood. I deny the definition. Death is a separation of the soul from the body, said his antagonist. Then we don't agree about our weapons, said the logician. Then there is an end of the dispute, replied the antagonist. The civilians were still more concise, what they offered being more in the nature of a decree than a dispute. Such a monstrous nose, said they, had it been a true nose, could not possibly have been suffered in civil society, and if false, to impose upon society with such false signs and tokens was a still greater violation of its rights, and must have had still less mercy shown it. The only objection to this was, that if it proved anything, it proved the stranger's nose was neither true nor false. 
End of chapter 35, part 1